Good evening, my name's Pete. Um, there's probably many of you here who I'm yet to meet. I'm a student minister, but I work mostly with the five o'clock congregation. This is my first time um, here at church past, what, 6.30. So, here I am. Uh, we're kicking off a new series tonight. Um, we're spending four weeks looking at different doctrines and especially looking at Jesus' teaching on some of these different doctrines. Uh, some of them are tough words and tonight I'll be opening up tough words on sin and forgiveness. We will get to the Gospels, but we're going to be a little bit broader than that this evening. Um, if you could keep open Genesis 3 and Luke 7, we'll come to them briefly along the way. But we'll also have a few um, flashing up here on the screen as well. Sin and forgiveness, tough words from Jesus. I wonder if, um, if you walked out on the street and just asked someone walking along the uh, to answer this question, I wonder what they would say. If you ask them, are humans basically good or basically bad? What do you think people would say? Just, just, uh, sorry? Basically good. I used to work um, in a high school um, teaching scripture full time. Um, I did all the scripture classes and time and time again when I would ask uh, the, the students there, do you think humans are basically good, human nature, or is human nature basically bad? Or a third option, maybe humans are born neutral, but the world influences them to do good things or bad things. Time and time again, the kids would say humans are basically good. But when things go wrong, it's because of bad influences in their families or in the world that have led them to do evil things. But humans are basically good. Now I can understand if, if you were trying to answer that question just from looking around the world, just from observing the way society works, I can understand how you can come to that kind of a conclusion that humans are basically good because babies when they're born they're, they're nice and cuddly. Primary school kids are a little bit more annoying. Teenagers, well, they're sex crazed party animals. You can see how you can come to the conclusion that humans are born good but bit by bit they're influenced by the world. As I was chatting with these high school students over the years, especially about sin, I realised that we can never come to a proper understanding of our human condition just from looking around the world, just from looking at society. We can never come to a true understanding, especially of sin and human sin, just by looking out there. If we really want to know what we're like, we need God's voice to tell us because sin has so scrambled our nature that we can't even fully recognise just how scrambled we are. The great theologian Karl Barth said that humans are crooked even in the knowledge of our crookedness. I guess another way to say that is that we humans are blind even to the fact of our blindness. And so, how do we know about sin? Well, we know about it through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came onto the scene, Jesus exposed human sin. Do you remember when he called Peter, his disciple, and Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus exposed human sin. Jesus announced his judgment on sin. Jesus called people to repent from sin. And Jesus came to save people from their sin. We know about sin from the Gospel, 
but also from scriptures more broadly as well. And that's where we're going to begin. Let's kick it off by um, with that first reading we had from Genesis 3. If you were to read through Genesis 1, 2, 3, sort of in one order, you'd get a better flow for this, but we're just going to jump in at 1 to 7. In these early chapters, in this first sin, we see that sin is humans grasping after God's authority. Humans grasping after God's position. Now in the story, when you tell the story or read the story, it seems a little bit more simple than that. It seems as though here's a commandment, Adam and Eve disobeyed that commandment, so sin is just breaking the rules, not doing what God wanted. When you look a little bit more closely, sin is much broader than just disobeying God's rules. That tree, that tree that they were not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree, if they were to eat from it, would make Adam and Eve like God. It would make them like God knowing good and evil. That is, like God being the ones who determine what is good and what is evil. If they eat the fruit of that tree, they are the ones who make the rules, decide the difference, the boundaries between good and evil. To eat from that tree is more than just breaking God's rule. It's grasping over God's, grasping at God's throne itself. And so, of course, the immediate consequence when God finds out is he kicks them out of the garden. When God finds a puny human sitting on his throne, he boots him off, out of the palace, out of the kingdom even. And so now there's distance between God and humanity. There's a barrier between God and humanity. That human-God connection is cut off. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, we have an intimate relationship, a direct relationship, a personal relationship, a naked relationship even. But the instant humans grasp after God's authority, it's all cut. Now, not only is that human-God relationship cut off, but the human-human relationship is also poisoned by sin. If we were to keep reading, the very next story is of the first two brothers on earth, Cain and Abel. But this relationship is one that's demolished by anger and jealousy. God says to Cain, unless, uh, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and unless you master it, it will overcome you. He's unable to master it. And so he leads Abel off into the field and beats him to death. The destruction of sin ruins the human-God relationship, but it also obliterates the family relationships. Now we could keep going on, we could keep tracing out stories of sin in the Bible, different episodes where sin uh, masters someone or we see the effects of sin. We're going to take a different tack though tonight and we're going to try and build up more of a broad understanding of the nature of sin rather than look at different episodes. I've just got some snapshots. So these will come up on the screen. Really each verse just has one, one point and then we'll move on. Let's begin with Isaiah. 
This here is how Isaiah describes the nation Israel. And we're looking for, what does it tell us about sin? Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. Isaiah says, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Reminds us a bit of Genesis. Sin is turning your back on God. Sin is rebellion. There's more to it. Uh, Next one. Later on in Isaiah, we discover that sin is also pollution. Sin pollutes humans. This is when God calls Isaiah to be his special special prophet, his special mouthpiece to the rest of the nation. And Isaiah's first response is, Woe to me, I cried, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Sin makes humans unclean in God's eyes. Uh, let's turn to Jeremiah. Now, I, I was looking for a better phrase, but this is as, as uh, far down as I could boil it. Sin is inexplicable, misplaced dependency. Now, this little excerpt from Jeremiah comes in a much bigger tirade from God to Israel about Israel's idolatry. And this little bit here is framed as though God is speaking to the heavens. Here's what he says. Speaking to the heavens about Israel. Therefore I bring charges against you again and again, declares the Lord. I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. You can imagine someone creeping through the desert, dying of thirst, and then they stumble upon this spring, a real flowing spring of cool, fresh water. The picture up here in Jeremiah is that the person turns their back on this spring of living water. And here are some broken, cracked containers that are not even empty, but they're hoping that they might be filled up, even though they don't hold water. And right behind them, is the water that would save them. Inexplicable, misplaced dependency. Sin is trusting the untrustworthy. Let's come to the New Testament. Uh, We'll get to Romans. What about the range of sin? How wide is the range of sin? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, Death came to all because all sinned. Every human being is included. Every human being is born 
into a sinful state. No exclusions. How deep does sin go? And here we start to encounter some of these tough words from Jesus, Mark 7. Jesus said, It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, anger and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Sin runs, excuse me, sin runs right to the very core of our beings. Sin is not just actions, disobeying a commandment here, not doing what God wants there. Sin corrupts our attitudes, it corrupts our thoughts, it corrupts our very hearts. Sin corrupts our very beings. Does this include you? Yes. If you're a human, you're a sinful human. Human nature is not basically good. It's not even just basically bad. Human nature is thoroughly corrupt. And Jesus' words get tougher. Uh, We'll be in John now. Jesus makes it clear that sin is not just something passive that happens upon the human race. Sin is not something, some force that just happens to be in the world and turns us bad. Sin is active, ongoing rebellion in the face of the living God. It's something we all participate in day by day. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin, obeying sin, following sin. It gets worse still, as a slave to sin, it leaves us spiritually dead. When Jesus talks about trusting in him, he says, he speaks about it as though we've crossed over from death to life. That is, without Jesus, in your sins, you are dead, spiritually dead, spiritually unable to do anything. When I was in the high school and I used to talk about being spiritually dead and and what it was like to be cut off from God, I used to carry around this little uh, fish tank, a little portable fish tank with three goldfish in it. And I'd stand there and I'd scoop one of the goldfish out and just hold it above the water. Because a human outside of a relationship with God is like a fish out of water. We're not designed to live this way. If, fish, if, if humans stay outside their relationship with God, they will die. I've heard of someone using that... Uh, that illustration all the way. And the fish, it's a bit more distracting when you do it like that. That wasn't me. Being outside of a relationship with God is spiritual death. And so, because of this, because sin is like this, because sin is so enslaving, because sin is so pervasive, sin deserves the holy anger of God. Sin deserves the holy anger of God. Jesus often spoke about judging sin. Jesus declares that on the last day he himself will be the judge. He'll be on the throne and all of humanity will be raised before him. 
in John 5, Jesus says that when they're raised before him, Jesus will condemn sinners. Matthew 13, he says he will cast sinners out of his presence. Sin deserves the holy anger of God. Let's take a moment just to try and catch our breath and, 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 and maybe process some of this and take it in. Up on the screen, we'll just get a summary. Um, there's nothing new coming up. It's just what we've, the, the territory we've covered already. But as these things pop up, maybe you can try and see some of their effect in your life, some of these angles of sin. Some might be more prevalent for you than others. Maybe for you... You're very aware of this misplaced dependency where you've chased after something else instead of a relationship with God. Maybe it's the slave to the world. Maybe it's uncleanness from sin. Maybe whatever aspect of sin has taken hold of your life. As we look at that list, if you're a believer, this kind of list up here, and there's much more we could talk about, This kind of list should make us sober because this is what we've been rescued from. This kind of list, if you're a believer, should also make you thankful, joyful because this is what we've been rescued from. There shouldn't go a day where you don't thank God for chasing you down and saving you from this kind of sinful state if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, then please let let this be God's voice giving you that spiritual diagnosis which we can't find out from the rest of the world. Now, it's a bleak picture, I know, but there is hope to come. A hymn writer in the 1800s wrote, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. So let's turn to that second Adam as we look at the forgiveness of sins. When we turn to the Gospels, when we encounter the Gospels, straight away we discover that Jesus is connected with forgiveness of sins. Even before he's born, the angel announces to Joseph, even before Jesus is born, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. You can put, uh, see if you can put yourself in Joseph's shoes as he hears the angel say, this baby will save his people from their sins. Joseph understands the problem of sin. But when he hears that about this baby in Mary's tummy, all of a sudden hundreds of years of prophecy start focusing in on this little baby like a magnifying glass. The Isaiah prophet... The, uh, The prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah had all spoken about a person who would come in the future, a person whom God would send that would perform a ministry that would render permanent forgiveness of sins. Isaiah speaks about this person. He would be gentle. He would be like a servant. Even a bruised reed, he wouldn't snap. That's how tender and careful he would be with the people around him. This person would be obedient and would give his life in place of many. 
Isaiah wrote that 450 years before Jesus and now while this baby is still in Mary's stomach, the connection is made that Jesus will perform that ministry. There's three ways, well three ways we'll look at tonight in which Jesus goes about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus welcomes sinners, Jesus teaches about forgiveness and then the great one, Jesus provides permanent Forgiveness of sins. We'll we'll move through these fairly quickly. If you read either Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, you can't escape the fact that Jesus welcomes sinners. It's massive in every gospel. Here's just a quick list which I came up with. There's um, Zacchaeus, that short tax collector who ripped off everybody else, stole from them. He climbs up the tree just to see Jesus. The rest of his countrymen hated him and turned their backs on him, but Jesus comes, has a meal with him and forgives him. There's other tax collectors. There's Levi, there's Matthew. Um, Together with tax collectors you have um, questionable women. There's prostitutes, there's adulterers. Jesus spends time with them, shares meals with them. You've got sick people. According to Old Testament law, a sick person was sort of equivalent to a sinner because sickness made somebody unclean. So there's a leper, a leper is cast out of the city but Jesus goes, spends time with lepers, blind people, lame people, people with all kinds of diseases, the worst of all, people who were possessed by evil demons. Jesus comes to them and rescues them and Jesus interacts and loves and cares for non-Jews. Again in the Old Testament, someone who wasn't a Jew was equivalent to being a sinner. And then there's the thief on the cross. Now you could probably add many of your own. That list, even just that brief list, should make us love our Saviour even more. Because when we see Jesus doing this, we find out that God is merciful. God forgives. This list represents not just that Jesus spent time with social outcasts, people on the edge of society. It represents God moving towards people whom the Old Testament law condemned and yet here's Jesus loving them. Now in that second Bible reading we had tonight, um, we had the story of, of, um, of a prostitute coming to Jesus. Can you remember what the Pharisee who's there in his home, can you remember what he muttered under his breath when this woman was weeping on Jesus' feet. Uh, Verse um, 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. It was incomprehensible that the Messiah would welcome such people. But Jesus goes further than just welcoming them and making friends with them. A little bit later on, verse 48, Jesus even says, Your sins are forgiven. Right then and there, at the dinner table, this sinful human is made right with God. She's rejected by the religious leaders, she's condemned by the law, but she's accepted by Jesus and forgiven by God. Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus also teaches about forgiveness. I might leave you um, to look up Matthew 18 a little bit later on. But there's a number of parables which speak about sin as huge debts 
against a king or against a master. And when someone begs for mercy, the master forgives the debts. The expectation though is that as humans, we treat fellow humans with that same forgiveness and mercy. There's lots of um, parables like this where Jesus teaches on forgiveness. We'll move past it though and we'll come to the third one. Jesus provides permanent forgiveness of sins. The real climax of Jesus' ministry is the cross and it's at the cross when we, dis- when we discover just how far God was willing to go to save sinners. Every whip that cracked across Jesus' back, every step that he took carrying that cross out of the city, every dying breath that he breathed, he went through all of it to achieve permanent forgiveness of sins. That prophecy from Isaiah was beginning to come true. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' death was a once-for-all sacrifice. Um, I don't think Hebrews 10 is up there. Just note down Hebrews 10 as a chapter to read on once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus' death was powerful enough to cut through time, cut through time forward and cut through time backwards. In the Old Testament, God had provided a system of sacrifices, a system where you could pay for your sins by killing an animal. Once a year, the high priest would gather the whole nation and pay for the whole nation's sins. But no blood of an animal can really make a sinful human right with a holy God. Something much more permanent is required. And so Jesus steps forward as the high priest. Not only is he the high priest who's going to make the sacrifice, but he offers himself as the sacrifice. Jesus offers himself to God, the perfect, unblemished sacrifice once for all. No further sacrifice ever needed. The blood of the perfect Son of God shed for sins. This sacrifice is fully effective. That is, Jesus paid for sin entirely. There's nothing left to pay. When you trust Jesus, There's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing else we can do to pay for our sins. You don't need to pray a certain amount of times a day. You don't need to do particular acts of service or fasting or ceremonies or rituals. Jesus had done it all. All sins, past, present, future, cleansed, paid for, forgiven. In fact, any attempt to add to what Jesus achieved only suggests that we don't really understand that his death was adequate fully effective, which gives us a total pardon. We're not half forgiven, sort of the way us humans might half forgive other people who wrong against us. This is a total pardon. It's the declaration from God now that sins are wiped out. We don't have to go through life wondering, will God accept me? I hope I've done enough good. We can have that verdict from the last day brought forward and given to us now. 
Romans 3, Romans 8 talk about that, that verdict given in the present time. Forgiveness of sins. Sinners forgiven. And finally, where this is all heading is that restored relationship with God. The result of forgiveness of sins is once again having an intimate relationship with God. Our relationship with God after our sins are forgiven is so intimate that God even chooses to dwell in us with his spirit. Try and wrap your minds around that. That's how close he wants to be with us. Forgiveness of sins is not something that happens out there. Forgiveness of sins is something that happens in your heart, between God's heart and your heart. It's essentially a relational thing. It's God accepting you, your sins, paid for, pardoned, accepted. When uh, Jesus was on the cross, the cross was outside of the city, And in the city of Jerusalem, right in the heart of the city was the temple. Right in the heart of the temple was a little room called the Holy of Holies. Symbolically, this little room was where God dwelt. No one could even enter that room except for the high priest once a year and only for a very short time. Blocking this room off from the rest of the temple was a huge curtain, a huge curtain that reached from the floor all the way up to the top of the ceiling. And the curtain symbolised a barrier between humans and God. If you were worshipping in the temple and glanced over at the curtain, you remembered, we can't access God properly. But when Jesus is on the cross, this curtain begins to rip. Not from the bottom up as though humans are trying to, to somehow rip it open and get into God, but it rips from the top down. Symbolically saying that God is breaking open the barrier. God is opening himself up because of what his son was doing on the cross outside of the city. God opened himself up for intimate, personal relationship with humans once again. Sins gone. Because of this, we don't need some other sinful human to mediate God to us. We have direct access to the living, loving creator. Let's wrap this up. Tonight our talk has been in two parts. We've had sin and forgiveness. And really these are the only two conditions in which you might approach the living God on the last day. In your sins or forgiven. We have a choice. And Jesus makes us an offer Listen carefully to this offer. It comes in John 5:24. Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, whoever whoever hears my words and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life." That's Jesus' offer. He's offering to cross us over from death to life. In a moment we're going to pray and just thank God that he sent Jesus to save us from that sinful state. But I wanted to finish by reading just a couple of verses from the Psalms together. 
Um, why don't you open up, flip open to Psalm 103. It's on page 428. And there's just a couple of verses right here in the heart of this psalm, which is a psalm celebrating God's forgiveness. And I thought we could read it all together. It's on page 428, Psalm 103. And we'll pick it up at verse 8. We'll just read down to verse 4, uh, sorry, verse 8 down to verse 12. Let's read it all together and then I'll finish with a short prayer. Psalm 103, verse 8. Together. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Heavenly Father, thank you for rescuing us through your Son, Jesus. Amen.